What I do want to try to give you today is something a little different. It's a mindset, a change of mindset, actually, and, uh, because there's a lot of confusion out there, and I believe this about families, and I believe this change of mindset can actually help you and me, whether we're fathers or, or mothers or just friends of, of, of people. It, it can help us really dive in and think about people and think about how to know people and, and to see their purpose and their vision. But I want to focus on families on purpose because this is Mother's Day. And um, honestly, the, the thing that I've noticed is there's several different ways people address or models that they approach their families from. Not so much in Southern California, but in, in, uh, in some states and in some small towns, you can actually end up with families that say, you know what, this is the way that I was raised. This is the way that we are. I was a, you know, dads can tell their kids, I was a coal miner. You're going to be a coal miner. Your grandfather was a coal miner. This is just what we do. And, and so maybe some of you were raised like you were going to be the businessman, take on the family business, or you, were, you need to step up and you're going to take them and be the next uh, teacher or whatever in your family. Anybody like that? Kind of you were raised in that hey, this is who we are, this is how we are. I didn't think so. SoCal works on a different, two different structures. Um, one of those different structures depends on if you're in the, Christ, in the Christian church or not. And that is the sacred family model. There's a, there's a big focus, with focus on the family and all this stuff. There's kind of this reality of like, we're the sacred family and our family is the, sub, the tightest unit of all of reality in a sense. And I've known families who've gotten so into this, they like pick their kids' spouses out. You know, they're, they're making sure their kids are always doing what they want to do. They're even, um, I've even had a family say at one time, I believe, um, wait, many years ago that, hey, no, my kid can't go on a mission trip because that would be to break the family apart. And it's that kind of like family-only, family-first reality that's, that can be found in a lot of Christian churches. And maybe you felt like that. You weren't allowed to spread your wings and fly because your Christian parents kind of kept you in their bubble, kept you in their, in their control sites at all times kind of a reality. A third one, though, is much more common, and it's much more uh, regular for us in SoCal, and that's what I call the American dream family. I was in this family. I've known a lot of people who have been in this family. Your parents raise you so that you will do better than your parents did. Anybody have your parents do that? Like they got the bachelor's degree. You're going to be the first kid to go to college because I've worked hard to get you to go to college. I got my bachelor's degree. You're going to get a master's. I got a master's. You're going to get a doctorate. Or, you know, hey, we, uh, I made this much money. I, I really want you to have the leg up and be able to make the next level of money. I had this size of house. So hopefully you'll have the next size of house. Anybody have a family like that where it's like, I want you, my kids to have the next best thing or you're going to have the next best thing. Some of us may be actually living that way. And then finally, the most common form of family. It's called just get through this family. It's survival, right? Everybody in that one, raise your hand. Yes, that's a, we're just trying to make it. Come on, what are you talking about models? I haven't thought enough about my family. I'm just waking up, going through the day, going to bed. And that's the survival family reality is huge. And so what we want to do is I want to, I want to encourage you today. Maybe there's a way as Christians we should be addressing our families. Maybe there's a way as human beings that, it, that we could actually look at our families and have not the desire just to send their children through a bunch of pleasurable experiences and have a better pleasurable life than me, but maybe to have more purpose. Not to simply say, hey, maybe we can have a family with more capital than I had, or, but maybe more character. How about maybe instead of, of looking to just be, um, be a family that's surviving, we can teach our family members how to thrive, how to live like God intended us to live. I think we can do that. And I think we've been given the tools in the scripture to do so. And the model that I want to give to you guys today as a, as a gift in a sense is a way of thinking through your family that deals with God's story. 
See, I believe God's story is a model for examining your family, a way to look at how to view people, your children, your spouse, your parents, you know, crazy Uncle Joe, whatever it is that gives you an opportunity to look at these people. And so when we start, we want to know what is God's story. Some of you guys may not be, you may be beginning at, the, at, at reading your Bibles, you haven't gotten all the way through, you're like, that's a lot. I'm going to give you a very high-level abstract version of the story of the Bible. And it really, it starts with this first, uh, this first kind of act. It starts off with creation. And God creates the world, creates it perfect, he creates it good, he creates humanity and places them in paradise. And so everything is good, it's perfect, it's intentional, it's right. And then, in the, then the quickly, like within a page in your Bible, it moves into the next phase, which is called the fall. Now, the fall is, is, the next, is the horrific thing that happens next. Adam and Eve sin against God, plummeting humanity into sin. God has to curse the world. The world is now against humanity. God and man is separated. Death has entered. Disease has entered. Destruction has entered. And this world has just become trashed compared to what God had in the creation. But God doesn't leave it there. While he's ready to judge it, and he will, and while he's ready to destroy it because he's holy and he can't have sin with him, he changes trajectories and now moves into a movement from his mercy called redemption. So it goes creation, fall, redemption. In his redemption move, he he works with these various groups of people until he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to bear on himself the sins that have been committed because of the fall, the justice and the judgment that's right towards the fall, and he bears it on himself to free us and gives a message of hope and a message of redemption where he's going to take us back now to the original intent, a relationship with him, purpose and direction, and that will finally be known in the last movement when Christ returns and which is called the consummation, when all of the, what God's plan has consumed and finalized. And these four movements is the story that you'll find in, in the detail in your scripture, in the Bible. But if we look at these, they also give us an ability to kind of examine ourselves and look at our family members. So I want to do this today to have some fun and to think a little bit about this. But I want to start with this. If you start with your family, one of the things that's important is that we start with a conversation about how do we look at, a, how do we look at our children? How do we look at our spouse, our parents? But I want you to start by thinking and seeing the creation in your family. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's start here. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at two verses uh, in Genesis 1 really quickly. And if, if you've been around here, you've read these oh, quite a few times because <coughs> I believe these are some of the most important verses for our entire culture. But <coughs> we'll just start with this. God has just finished creating. He's been speaking to the land, creating things, and finally he speaks to himself. He says, let us make man in our own image. And so now he does this. He creates humanity, and it's, and it's kind of separated from all the other parts of, of chapter one in creation. He's kind of pinpointing a very powerful thing because he sets it out in poetry. And he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And right there, God does two things. He gives humanity not just a purpose, but a presence of what they are. He tells us what we are and he tells us why we're here. What is a human being? And then what's a human being for? And right there, it's, it's powerful. 
Because he says, you human beings are made in the image of God. Kevin kind of went over this last week. And, and he said, kind of all the debates out there about the image of God are kind of interesting. And it's about whether intelligent also is. And he says, let's just put it this way. Human beings are the image of God. What is the image of God? They're human beings. Now, I like to go a little deeper. I'm a little, uh, uh, and I've thought a lot about this. And so what I want to dive into a little bit is what is this image of God? Because it helps us begin to look at our family. And I think you could break the image of God up into two kind of ideas. You have the, the character or the attributes of God, and you have the value of God. And these two things are connected. And so when I talk about you and me and our children and our parents being made in the image of God, it means that you and I have the character or attributes assigned to us of God. And let me clarify this. Theology, theology talk. All of you have never gotten deep into theology. It's an important theological distinction. And when you talk about God, you can talk about his attributes. That God's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere, um, or all-present, that he's, he's loving, or he is love, he's justice, he's all of these attributes. When you get into it, there are certain attributes that they will call communicable. Now, we all know that word, communicable, right? And you don't want it associated with the word disease. Communicable diseases are the ones that we spread to each other and we give away. Nobody, if you've got a communicable disease in here today, you know, please don't spread it. The idea is that we can communicate disease is, is how we understand that. God's communicable attributes, the things that he is, that he communicates to humanity are things that we can both have. Like God is love, but we love. We have a kind of love. God's creative. We saw that in creation. Are we not creative as human beings? Yes or no? Yeah. I think we're pretty creative. We're not like God, though. God can make whatever he wants. We only make things from what we know. We're limited in our creativity. We're limited in the way that we love. We are not identical to God's attributes. They're only communicated to us. I'm under the conclusion that when God says you're made in the image of God, he has communicated all of his attributes to us in a very limited way. You go, wait, if God's, if God's omnipresent, he's everywhere, how is that communicated to us? Well, you're present. That's how you limit that. You're here. And some of you are more here than others. It's called charisma. It's called charisma. Isn't that interesting? Some of you walk into a room and everybody knows you're there. I walk into a room and people are like, oh, were you at this party? Oh, yes, I was. You know, I'm not existent. It's kind of, some of us are more present than others. Some of us, fascinatingly enough, have more intelligence than others. Some of us have more emotional intelligence than others. Some of us are more creative than, all my creatives, raise your hand in here. Come on, who's the creative people in the room? You love it, all right. You, you, you express yourself creatively. In fact, some of you find that your creativity kind of lends you towards being kind of loose with rules and kind of, you actually are kind of one of those people who, who you're just really quick at grabbing things and making things fit together. And there's creativity about it. But some of you guys may be creative and, uh, and some of you guys may define yourself differently. How many of you guys would say you're an ordered person? You're kind of like, you got things in order. You got things put together. Put your hand up, be, be proud, you know? Okay, so very orderly, thank you. And the... Um, that's not saying that you're not creative, though. You know, that's how it's funny, though. I'm a, I'm a creative person, and I'm not that ordered. But I'm ordered enough to put a sermon together, and I'm ordered enough to kind of put, to place things in their place. I still have order in me. It's just not what I'm known for. And some of you are, are ordered people are still creative. You're ex- some of you are extremely creative. It's like it's not opposite. 
But some of you are like, well, I'm ordered and I'm kind of you know, analytical and, and, and I'm not really that creative. Except you're creative enough to lie. <laughs> right? I mean, it takes creativity to come up with a lie. So we're all creative. Don't knock yourself. We have creativity. We have all of these various attributes, but they're limited. They're different. I think when we dive into the concepts of personality, like you take a personality test or you take a, a, some kind of corporate business test, I think what we're playing with is we're trying to discover what are these similarities that are actually the attributes of God that have been communicated to us. What we're diving into is the uniqueness of the human being. And the beautiful thing is that God in heaven is infinite. And all of his attributes, all of his character attributes are infinite. He can take varying degrees and sizes, and he can make an infinite amount of different human beings. And none of them would be the same. I'm actually claiming that every human being is unique, made in the image of God, to represent God on earth as he intended you to. That means you have purpose. And so when I look at my family and I see that I'm creative and my wife is ordered and my daughter has God's like total lordship kind of kingly attributes to her. I mean, she's a leader is another way of saying that. She just was born a leader. She came out and said, nurse, do this, do this, and do that. It was like amazingly, amazingly strong leader. I'm seeing what God has put in them for the purpose that he has for them. Now, What's interesting is I can say things like, well, there are some of you that have God's beauty and some of you that don't, or don't have less of it. You're going like, that's so wrong, except that's why it's wrong. Here's what's wrong is the way we think about these things. Saying, oh, I'm more intelligent, oh, you're a haughty. No, sometimes it's just truth. Here's the problem. We disassociate God's image. We break it apart into, yes, his attributes, and we forget the value. How much is God worth that you image? He's infinitely valuable. He is an infinite God. There is no end to his value. He's unique. There's no one like him, perfectly like He is God, and he is of infinite worth and value. And he's made you and me in his image. How valuable then are you? Not how valuable do you feel. How valuable are you actually? You are incalculable in your worth. You are innately, innately incalculable. You are so valuable, you couldn't put a number on it. Now, it has so much, I could go into ethics and all kinds of stuff right there. We could talk about this for like the rest of the year. But the bottom line is that value is hugely important. Our culture is lost. What's a human and they've lost? What's the value of a human? And right there, God says, you're made in the image of God. You are to represent God and you are of infinite value. Here's what, how much he valued you by. He gave you his son, Jesus Christ, who is of infinite worth to buy you back. That's the word redeem you. That's how valuable you are. You are of incalculable value. And so when you see that you are of incalculable value and you have all these unique attributes that God has given to you from him to be, represent him on earth, here's, what, here's why it's not wrong to say, well, some of us are more creative than others, some of us are more intelligent than others, some of us are more ordered than others. Here's why, because we don't actually have to live in high school anymore or junior high anymore, okay? How many of you guys were jocks? Throw up your hands. We're, I know we're like pegging people. That's okay, I, I, I was in the jock category. How many of you guys would be like in the nerd category? All right, 
Man, our, our church is like nerd heavy. It's awesome. Because I was also in that category. So I was kind of one of those bridgers. But I can, being, having lived in both categories, what was interesting is you hang out with the jocks and they would be about athletic ability and capability. And so when you talk to them, they're like, oh yeah, that guy, he's like, I did it. And they would put, stack people according to how athletic they were. Some people stacked themselves by how sociable they were. They called it cool. And, and so some were not sociable. Others were sociable. You got in the nerd world and it was all about who's more intelligent, because those dumb guys over there in the cool world, well, we're on top. We're going to own their jobs. So they're down there, you know. And literally, there was a whole conversation going on in nerd world about who was more intelligent. And what we were doing is we were taking what God intended as boxes of categories, and we were stacking them as ladders. And we were judging people by what rung of the ladder they were on. And we still do it today. We take our children, and we take our, our loved ones, and we go, well... So-and-so is not as smart as so-and-so, and and somehow their value is lower? Oh, they're way more athletic. Oh, that hurts or not. God has made you unique. He's got all, all the attributes are there. They're just stronger or weaker in aspects because he has a purpose for you. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. We stack the boxes, but guess what? Boxes make lousy ladders, don't they? You bump them, they fall over. No wonder we stack them against each other. We form our cliques and we fight. God doesn't want cliques in his church. God is out to show you in your family that you are uniquely made and designed and purposed for his glory. Now, once you've done that, once you've dove in, you start to get excited about that. You get to see how each person is in God's image. And you begin to dive in, you begin to look at these things and you start to see, hey, wow, my family has a purpose. There's something to celebrate here because there is that other side. Not only what are we, but what are we here for? You're here to make culture. You're here to make something of life, to take what God has given you in this world and do something with it. That's what he was saying when he says, go subdue the world and do this stuff. He's saying, go make culture. Go be humans. Go express who God has made you in his way. Now, here's the problem. We don't do that. Something occurred. And so when you examine your families, we get all excited. Look at the beauty. Look at the wonder. Look at this kid. They're so cool. I watch my daughter. I'm like, what a leader. I watch my son. What a creative little Lego builder. Whoa, look at my athlete. And I see these different things in my kids, and I get to celebrate them. And then you're, looking, you're celebrating, and then you go, ooh, what is that? It's called the fall. You need to look at the fall in your family because it's there, and it's strong. It's strong in your spouse, isn't it? Just nudge them, you know, just like, yeah, it's, it's right. My wife's perfect, I'm the mess, I get that. But anyway, so it, the beauty of this is that when we see the fall, it helps us get prepared. Turn your, if you've got the Bibles in the seats, turn over one page to Genesis chapter three. And this is where the fall begins. Adam and Eve have been told not to eat of a particular fruit in the garden and they go to that tree anyway and they're tempted and they take it. And in verse six, they begin, when the women saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was good to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, Nate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Don't think that Adam was off doing something else. He was watching her going, this will be interesting. Oh, you ate that. Oh, bummer. Okay, I'll have some. I mean, literally, it's like, what's this guy doing? He's supervising. So, and he ate, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together so they could make themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. The Lord God who made them, they had fellowship with, they loved this God and they, God loved them. And he starts coming and what do they do? They hide. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God and among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? It's not like God didn't know where he was. He's just giving him a chance to confess. And he steps out and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right there is the human psychology. I'm a mess. I'm afraid you're going to see I'm a mess. So I hide myself. I hide myself behind my Facebook, my Instagram, my cop and my attitudes, my rebellious whatevers, my thoughts, my ideas. Look how smart I am. Look how good of a speaker I am. Yes, even I hide myself and only let out the parts that I think you'll like. We all do it. And as we do that more and more and more, it messes us up further and further and further. But this fallen reality is in everything. And while you have this awesomeness that we are, maybe you're athletic and creative, maybe you're really good with your hands and you're like, you've got God's creative power to actually develop and form things, whatever it is, you've got all this capacity in you, it's been twisted because of the fall. Sin exists and sin isn't from out there. First observation from this text is sin in our lives comes from within, not from without. The sin came from within. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Where'd the sin come from? Did it come from their environment? I mean, they're in paradise. There's no upbringing to cause them problems. They can't blame their parents. Their parent was God. He made me do it. Yeah. Well, it was the devil. The devil didn't make them do anything. He just offered them an an opportunity. See, sin does not come from the environment. I think that's something we need to hear again, especially as Christians, because the danger is that we think it does. And if you believe that sin comes from the environment, one of the things you may overreact in is to remove your children and your family from the world and you become monks. Living in a private monastery called a house with other monks that you meet in your various groups. Be it your your home school group, be it your private school group, be it your Christian club group, whatever it is, we kind of avoid the world as much as possible because they might make you sin. Sin doesn't come from the world. It comes from within. It's already dwelling in your house. It's already living in your children. It's already acted out in your spouse. It's already been there in your parents. Sin comes from within. There's no legislation of the heart. In fact, what's fascinating is the tighter you squeeze the heart with rules, the more likely it's going to explode when it finally gets to college (laughs) or when you finally get to freedom. Sin is within. And we can't believe that we can just simply use a structural environment to keep sin away. It's not going to happen. We will use even that structural environment to be our route for sin. You see... While Adam and Eve didn't have an environment that caused them sin, it came from within. And they passed that on to us. That same inner turmoil was given to us so that you can actually begin to examine your family and be armed and ready to help your children deal with the sin that is in them. You can help yourself and your spouse to deal with the sin that's already there. 
How do you do that? Well, you've already started. When you've examined all the positive traits in your family, all the stuff God intended, here's the crazy thing. The things that you loved about your spouse when you got married are the very things you probably can't stand right now. Anybody notice that? You never heard that one? Oh man, this is great. My wife, when we got married, um, we, were, we were just engaged. Three days after the engagement, I was at her house. She just finished planning the wedding. Dude, just boom. I'm like, you're hot and smart and organized. Yeah, full package, baby. It was incredible. I was pumped. And so I'm just like, I'm amazed by how well organized she could get and all this stuff. And, and so we get married and it's good. And you're in, I'm going like, man, everything has a place. Did I mention I'm a creative person who doesn't have many rules? Suddenly I'm like, whoa, yeah, let's go. And she's like, oh, it's vacation. What are we going to do for vacation? What do you mean, what are we going to do for vacation? We're going to have vacation. In my world, vacation is you just go do vacation. Whatever comes your way, you enjoy it, right? And others of you are, no, 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 no. Vacation. It's a very planned thing or you will not get any vacation. You won't go to bed on time. You're going to be exhausted when you're done. You need to make sure you start planning for vacation four months before vacation. So you can imagine the very thing I loved about my wife, suddenly I'm going, I'm not so sure I like this. It's the very thing you struggle with. She's like, I like how creative you are. You write music. You like writing stuff. This is so cool. Greg, get off your lazy bottom. Life hasn't hit me yet, babe. The very things she loved in me, in one sense, the very characteristics that are good and powerful are the very strengths that make me who I am become the very weaknesses that I sin the most in. My creativity is my laziness. Her order becomes oftentimes an idolistic hold that she can't let go of to relax. And so we were having troubles until we realized, whoa, The very strengths we love about each other are the very weaknesses we can't stand. If you want to see your children, my daughter, man, leader, oriented leader, like I've got this, she's like forward thinking, able to grab something, making eggs at the age of three in the kitchen. And that was worrying me, but she, she had it, right? She's little bossy pants and she's stubborn. And man, she'll look at you and she'll run the house. She told she we have she has four cousins and three brothers. And one day she comes home and, and we're t- we're trying to tell the kids to do something, or we're trying to tell the cousins you can't do that. And and, and my wife's trying to tell the cousins that's really not what we do. She's like, well, Adeline said we could. That's my daughter. And I was like, what? Yeah, Adeline's the boss. That's that's how this works. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you didn't. You know, it's kind of like. That's the struggle. Her great leadership skill becomes a wrestling match in her desire to have her way. The strengths twisted by the fall become our sins and our weaknesses. So maybe you're having trouble discovering the strengths in your children because you're just in a bad, depressed space. And some of us get there. Take a minute to look at the weaknesses of your kids, the weaknesses of your spouse. Lift them up out of their context and what do they look like when they're positive? suddenly you'll discover something. That what God had purposed one way has been twisted for another reason. And you've entered into the question of the fall. And this destruction then, and this kind of stuff helps you begin to see patterns. As you start looking into your family history, then you'll also see other patterns called family sin, which is passed down 
It's a soulish kind of thing. I mean, my family, we sit like this. I don't get it. It's comfortable. I do it. My mom did it. My sisters do it. My grandmother did it. I don't get it. It looks really silly. But I'm sitting there. I'm like, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's a good movie. That's why I got a bald spot. It's just rubbed off. But the funniest thing is that there's no gene for your arm resting on your head. Where does that come from? We went to a family reunion. Cousins are all sitting around like, hey, high five, you know. Sad. There's no gene for that. It's soulish. It's part of our souls. Guys, so is addiction. It comes through your family. Look at it. You'll see it. It's layered back there. Different addictions, but they're there. It comes, my family struggle with secret, secretive, just secretiveness, just keeping secrets to make the family look better. My mom's mom's mom on down all the way into my sisters and the family. We're all like, no, 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 we're all perfect and fine. <laughs> it's a family trait that I saw and been working against in my family. To be honest, to be open and not hide things because it was destroying our families. When you indicate family traits like that, you get a a leg up on what you're dealing with in the sin makeup of your family. Now, two other observations from this, and we'll move forward. The second one is that rebellion from God is the family's default position. Why do I say this? Because since Adam and Eve sinned, the default position is to hide from God, not to run to God. When your children are born, they may talk about God because they're in a God environment, But do not be shocked in the day that they push God away. The default position of a human being is to be pushing God out, not welcoming God in. You know how I know that? We're all Christians. How hard is it to really have a consistent quiet time? Be consistently in your devotions, consistently growing. Your default position is to push God away, not to pull him close. So if that's the case for us, if my children are not born Christians. No one is born a Christian, period. It's not possible. You must choose to receive Christ to become a Christian. And yes, some of you were born in a home that you, you've had a Christian life surrounding you, and so you're like, I don't have any choices. And yes, you've always had choices. Just how rebellious have you been is just how you've worked in those choices. And the reality simply is that all of us are in a rebellious state. Every person in the room. Don't be shocked if it takes years and years and years and years and years and years of your spouse fighting off God to come to faith. Don't be shocked if it takes you years and years and years to even begin to contemplate or want to. Or if your children, when they get to college, start going in different directions. That's the default position. And I say it as a sense of warning because some of you have beat yourselves up because you thought, what did I do that my kid went this way? What happened? What did I, you know what? There are families who have done everything perfectly and their kids still went off in a direction away from God because the default position in the family is to be against God. So take a break and feel a little bit more relaxed that you're not at fault. Okay? Hopefully you have lifted a burden there. And the last one is this. Death and disease and destruction will cut short your family's calling. It will. It has already cut short some of your children's calling because they never made it here. 
Some of you have had abortions. Some of you have had miscarriages. And those children's purpose that God intended and who they were hasn't happened. Some of you have lost children at young ages or in the spell. And yes, it's been stopped. But I don't care if you're a chi- the child has died or whether you're a 90-year-old in this room today. Even when you die as a 90-year-old, your purpose and plan has been cut short. How many dreams never occurred? How many books? How many songs you wanted to write? How many, how many treatises or how many things that you wanted to build? How much of the garden, how, of that house you wanted to have? How much of that has just never occurred? but it was in your heart and it wasn't wrong because God had put it there. You see, you are not designed for 80 years, 90 years. It says in Ecclesiastes, God put eternity in your heart. You're designed to live forever. The dreams and the things that we were supposed to do are not supposed to be cut short, but they will be by the fall. So when that pain and suffering comes, when that stuff happens, don't sit back and be aghast. Christianity doesn't ignore evil. It doesn't ignore the problem. In fact, what it does is says, yep, it's part of our story. But we don't have to stay here. We don't have to stay depressed. We don't have to stay condemned. Because God worked out redemption. He moved forward. And so we want to do the hard part. How can we see God's redemption in your family? Cool stuff. Our kids and our spouses and us, God has a purpose for. Oh, we messed that up. Pushed God away. Now he's ready to change it. He's ready to flip it. Through Jesus Christ, when you've received Christ, he starts to repurpose all of this. He starts to change it and shift it and move it. And what you need to see is this redemption in your family. According to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice this. He's rich in his mercy. He could have judged us. He could have left us here, but he didn't. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins where all of your dreams and stuff get cut short. Or maybe you get to do a couple of them. That's about it. Cut short, dead in our sins. Not seeing our full potential. God didn't leave it there. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he says it again. For by grace, that's a gift, you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone can boast. Where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice he has now repurposed things. He is shifting it all. And this is a daily repurposing. The problems of today, the struggles of today, all the issues of right now are being changed. This didn't happen just when you receive Jesus. It happens right now. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that those who love God and all thing, that all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything works together. All of the mess, all, of the, all the beauty of the creation, all the mess is being repurposed every day towards a new direction. What does this mean for you and me? First of all, notice this. He said that Jesus alone redeems our families. So you need to take a deep breath. What do I mean by that? He said, by grace you've been saved. This not of your own doing. Notice that? Let me put it this way. Parents, spouses of unbelieving family members, you can't save them. You can't save them. There's no formula. 
There's no special education program. There is no set of hedges and rules that saves them. Well, we can make Pharisees. Don't get me wrong. We've done a real good job of that. But we can't save anybody. God saves people. So Greg, we should say, let them go, let them run. No, no, no. That's what we're saved from. But we're not saved to law. We're not saved to rules. We're saved to the relationship with God. So what are you saying? What can I do? You can pray like crazy. As a parent, as a spouse, as a child, you can pray like crazy. And then you point. What do I mean by pointing? You talk about the gospel, you talk about Christ, and you live it. If we don't live it, we're not pointing, we're just talking. You can pray all you want, but we have to live it out in our lives. We have to live this gospel. We have to talk about our messes, our sins, our destruction, our problems. Yes, get out from behind the fig tree and come out and reveal the mess because that's who you really are. I thought about illustrating that, but I thought it would be really weird. So (laughs) we are created. See the value, love the value, see the mess, realize the mess and that you can't save the mess. You can't redeem the mess. So point to the one who can. Point to the one who can. Aim your lives toward Christ who can redeem your family. Some of you, that means you need to stop working so hard to try to save that person. I mean, you're working real hard. Tell them what to do, what not to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And every time they turn around, it's like, here's a Jesus quote, and I'm going to, here's a Jesus juke, and I did, bam, 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 bam. You know how that works. It's like, oh, what were you doing the other day? Oh, I was mowing the lawn. Well, that's good. Jesus would want you to mow the lawn. Now, Jesus would also want you to obey your parents by cleaning your room. You know, that's like, that's like no, not that kind of, that's not pointing. That's like, hey, you like Jesus? This isn't him over there. You know, that don't do that. Be in the word of God. Let it seep through your soul. Let it change you and shape you. But it starts with realizing we're not perfect. We're a mess. And so are your children. So is your spouse. And so it just means you got to allow it to be there. You got to be okay. That life is broken. Your pastor is a sinner. Your elders do evil things. And the nursery kids, they're cute, but they're not that nice. I mean, come on. Who are we kidding? When we don't do that, you know what happens? We lose track of what God's doing. See, God takes the mess. He adds the image of God plus the mess, and he starts repurposing it to a great vision. But if we hide the mess and we act like we're just over here in creation, we're perfect. (laughs) Look, look, Jesus saved me from what? This thing I'm hiding, don't look at it. You don't want to see it. I'm in behind a fig leaf. Huh? No. And when we hide the mess, when we keep the mess back, we keep the power of God from being shown to the world. And people think we're hypocrites. Yes, we're inconsistent, at least. But Jesus alone redeems our families, and we can be able to point to his redemption. And when he does that, he repurposes it. He gives it a new purpose. What do I mean by that? He says, you are his workmanship. That means his handcrafted tool. What is he using to handcraft you? But the original image and the mess that you and I are in, 
to reshape, retool us, and make our lives worth something. I'll give you some examples. An evening service uh, last week, uh, Steve Campbell came up on the stage and he gave the announcements. If you don't know Steve, Steve, if you'd known Steve about five, six years ago, he would have walked up here under his own power. Very capable man. Used to ride bikes, would have probably ridden a bike off this thing across, the, you know, just an incredibly athletic individual. Very capable. And in an athletic moment on a bike, he fell off the bike, went head first, broke his, broke his spine, has been paralyzed from the shoulders down, or from the, just under his shoulders down. Has no movement in his hands, rolled up here, gave his announcements from his wheelchair. You think, wow, this guy with all this potential, all this, what he could have been, what should have been, and then the mess of destruction has taken it all away. Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. From that, and from the love other people pointed and showed him, he came to Christ. From that point on, he's not afraid to talk about his mess, about what happened to him. He tells other people all the time. He works hard to be a a signpost, and he prays for people in his own situation. And suddenly, his life has been repurposed, where actually it didn't really have much before. My friend Brent and Nancy, really close friends of mine, they they love to tell the story. Because it's the, high, it's, the, it's the center point of their life. They were sitting there with divorce papers, staring at them across from each other at the table. Both of them with pens in their hands, and they looked at each other and said, I don't want to do this. And they agreed. And through years, while not at first, through years, Christ got a hold of their hearts, and their marriage was healed. And suddenly, they sat here, and they're in ministry. And they looked at each other and said, we don't want that to happen to anybody else. And they've counseled couple after couple after couple, pointing them towards Christ, pointing them away from the path they almost took. And God repurposed a horrible marriage and an awful event in their life, and he's repurposed it to be part of their calling. When we hide behind the fig leaves of the messes of our families, and we keep our children from ever really going through what God's got for them, suddenly, and we're not ready there to purpose them to Christ, we are destroying what God's going to do. You're falling right into his hands. You can't really destroy what God's going to do. But the point is simply that God redeems it. He flips it. We got to let it out. We got to let people see it. Because that, in that, in that is the repurposing and power. And the beautiful thing is that that ends eventually. That when Christ comes back, he will make it all final. We will understand why some stayed in the fall. We will understand why some were were judged. We'll understand why all the mess in our life was redeemed and we'll see it. The beautiful thing is that we'll never ever go back to sin again. And all of these lost dreams, all the stuff that was put in our hearts to do for God, you have an opportunity to do it and more in heaven. Because on the new earth, those dreams are re-brought, they're repurposed, And they're aimed at God and his glory. And those stories and those buildings and those things that we always dreamed about that never got done and fresh, new, resurrected bodies on a new earth are just waiting to glorify God. This is the story of purpose, mess, redemption, and hope. And I hope it changes your mindset about your family as we dive in to this next year. Happy Mother's Day. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would indeed help us to change our mindset about these things. Enable us 
to see the creation, the fall, and your redemption in our lives. That we would celebrate what you're doing in our families. Reveal it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.